You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. All right, how we doing, everyone? Good. Hey, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Jake, and I'm one of the pastors here. And as you saw in that video, we are in this series, People of the Pages, where we are talking about how our church first began some 15 years ago. And quick disclaimer, I'm one of the few pastors who was not here at the very beginning. I came in maybe about seven years ago. And prior to that, I was leading college ministry at a campus in Kentucky. And for a while, I had been doing various ministry jobs at different churches, just trying to figure out where the Lord was calling me to as far as ministry goes. So I was like an associate pastor at a church and I was a youth guy at another church and I was a worship pastor at another church, just trying to figure out where God was calling me. And then I landed on college ministry for a while and I did that for a bit. And then I came to work here. And with all that ministry experience, I thought I had a good idea of what I was getting myself to of what I was getting myself into. I thought I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder. And then my wife, on the other hand, she had been around Midtown since 2008. And she was came to uh, she became a Christian her freshman year of college here at USC, and then shortly thereafter plugged into this church called Midtown Fellowship. And they had only been a year old at that point. And she grew a lot in her walk with Jesus. She got baptized at an Easter baptism gathering here. And every time we started dating, and every time she talked about Midtown, her eyes would light up. She would just start crying profusely, thinking about how amazing her experience was at this church, how she grew up in her faith here. She led a life group here. And Then after she graduated, she got involved and started leading a college ministry at a campus in North Carolina. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of the campus. It's uh, Duke, I think is how you say it. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, But the way she talked about this church, her eyes would light up. And then I started, I got here, I started working here. And again, in my head, I had this idea of what I thought church and ministry was going to be like. And I never said this out loud to her, but I had this idea of, yeah, well, you know, you say this church is awesome, but I've worked at churches. I'm experienced. And I've, I've seen the drama. I've seen the political stuff that happens behind the scenes. I've, been, I've seen the committees at war with each other. So you say this church is great, but also like, this was your first church you ever got involved in. You have nothing to compare it to. Whereas, you know, I know a little bit more. And I don't think I ever said it that explicitly, but that was in my head. And what threw me was, some seven years ago, what blew me away was how transparent the pastors were and how they desired to really know me and and be my friend and and challenge me. Whereas in previous ministries, I'm sure I was the biggest problem, but with previous ministries, it was like, you know, I just had to put on the religious show. I just had to put on the Christian face and performance. But with this, it was like, these guys really wanted to know me and care for me. And they wanted me to be transparent and and be my friend. And it was through their friendship, uh, I am now the man of God. I'm the father, the husband, the Jesus follower that I am because of these men pressing into me and pouring into my life to where if some random church were to come to me today and offer me like a giant salary to uproot my family, to go to another church, I would have to decline because there are friendships and relationships that I've built here that you just can't replicate anywhere else. Like, show me another John Ludovina, I dare you. You can't, you just can't do it, you know? 
And again, I just fell in love with this church. And my wife the whole time was like, yep, yeah, told you so. Told you so. This is, this is why I love it too. And what I didn't know at the time was this uh, sort of transparency and relationships that the pastors were instilling within me. This is sort of the culture that we wanted to create from the top down. That the same friendships and relationships that we have, that everyone in our church family gets to experience this. This uh, culture of being known and loved and challenged to change and to grow and to lead and to love Jesus more. What we are going for, in short, is we want to do what we see in Scripture. We want to be people of the pages. And to help us see that this morning, we're going to look at a text, Ephesians chapter 4, that if you've been around for a minute, this is like, you know, we've, we've gone through this. You might know exactly what I'm going to say, and that's great. Uh, if you're new here, this is a good series and a good Sunday for you to come, for you to know exactly what our church is about. So I'll give you a second to turn there, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16 starting in verse 11. It says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So first, what Paul is doing is he wants to get everyone on the same page. He's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he spends the first three chapters laying out some theology of what Jesus has done, what he has accomplished through the cross. He has paid the penalty for sin. He has risen from the grave, and now he invites all of us into this newness of life. He invites everyone into this new community of faith to grow into the image of Jesus, and it says in verse 13 what that goal is for maturity, for all of us to grow into the image and likeness of Jesus. That phrase mature manhood in the Greek, it's this phrase andre teleos. It's this idea of to be a complete human, that when we are following Jesus, following after him in community together, we are in the process of becoming more human. We are living into what we were designed to be. So that as we build each other up, we become more and more the physical embodiment of Jesus on this earth and we begin to change. And it says in verse 11, to back up a little bit, that Jesus gave some people high leadership gifts so as to equip the saints so that they in turn can do the work of ministry so that those people can then in turn equip other people who equip other people to where before you know it, all of us in the church family are all working together. All of us are not on the sidelines, but all of us are on the field doing the work of ministry together for the purpose of all of us growing into maturity, all of us becoming more and more human. And this is the primary way that the world will know who Jesus is. Like the church is God's plan A to redeem the world. That when all of us in community together fighting for change in each other's life, that is the way in which the world will know who Jesus is. And it's absolutely beautiful. And this is why, to pull the curtain back, we make a really big deal in our church about life groups. Uh, for those of you that don't know, life groups, it's basically our small groups that we meet in homes throughout the week to apply what we heard in the sermon on Sunday. And we are trying to press into what the Bible tells us to do, to grow into maturity. Because the reality is to grow into the image of Jesus, to become formed, to look like Jesus is impossible to do in one hour 
on a given Sunday. It's impossible. And you can't really obey what you see in the New Testament apart from being in Christian community throughout the week. And this is why on any given weekday, if you step into a life group, what you're hopefully going to see, you're going to see people with Bibles open because we want to be receptive to what God's word has to say to us. We're going to see meals being shared with one another because something happens. It's in the Bible. And I don't know about you, but something happens where it's like, I am my happiest when I eat good food. And when I'm eating good food with someone else, it's like, we've just become best friends. I don't know how this happened, but I'm eating good food. You're eating good food. We're doing this together. Let's make BFF bracelets. Like, this is great. This is how friendships are formed. You're going to see sin confessed and people responding with warmth as they point each other to the promises of scripture. You're going to see people equipping and sharpening each other to help move in the same direction so that we can be the church that Jesus has called us to be in the scriptures. And by God's grace, over time, the spirit does a work in us to help us become more human You begin to change and grow and change is a beautiful thing when you're being changed into the image of Jesus and caring about what he cares about. And you're probably not going to see maturity happen just like on one week. But over time, when you are being receptive to what the scriptures tell you, the spirit will do a work in you in the weeks and the months and the years to where you start to see God working in you to be more like him. It's through scripture and the practices and being in community that the spirit, that we create sort of this greenhouse environment for our soul to grow godly fruit, to look more like him. But there is a problem when it comes to that because it doesn't come so easy. And that's what Paul gets to in verse 14, if you want to read with me there. Paul says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So Paul lays out the vision, maturity, being like Jesus. That is the end goal. And here are all of the obstacles and distractions that keep us in the way of following Jesus here. And that last phrase is what really gets me. That phrase, craftiness in deceitful schemes. It's like the things that look right on the outside, the things that seem totally fine, if you let your guard down, can easily distract you or lull you to sleep when it comes to following Jesus. And you might not even be aware of it. But over time, you just wake up one day and realize, I have not changed at all. I've not seen any growth in my Christian life. What is happening? And that means we need to constantly keep watch and keep looking at scripture and being in community to diagnose ourselves and see, are we doing what we see on the pages? And I've got one area where I think that temptation is especially possible. But before I get to that, I want to just give us some context here to set this up. So back in 2007, when our church first started, we looked at scripture. We saw, hey, uh, when you look at Christians gathering together, we see change happening in community. So let's do that. Let's be all about that. Let's be about the people gathered on Sundays and the people scattered in homes throughout the week. Let's do what we see on the pages. So we've been all about life groups and it's been incredible to see. Like we've seen people who did not know Jesus. And one of the first things they came to was a life group. And they were like, these people are weird, but they are sure loving and caring. And I'll give them an ear to tell me about Jesus. And over time, we saw people come to know Jesus through just hopping into life group. And that's amazing. 
We've seen people who, like your boy here, grew up in church, but like never had to be transparent at all. And then you come to a life group and it's like, these people actually want to know what I'm struggling with. And I can be honest with them about that. I've seen God do a radical work in me. And I've had pastors and members of our church call me out on my stuff over the last seven years. And if you were to meet me seven years ago, you'd probably be like, yeah, that guy's kind of gross. He's prideful. Yeah, he's, it stinks. Yeah. But now I think if you were to ask those same people, fast forward to now, you might say, he's less gross, less prideful. At least he knows it, you know, bless his heart. He's getting better, you know. And our church is a bit of an odd duck in that regard. The fact that we make such a big deal about life groups. In fact, we see more people involved in life groups than come on a Sunday morning. And that's just really weird. I don't know of many churches that are like that, that emphasize that, that have such a high number of people in small groups than come on Sundays. And I remember I was in a seminary class recently and the professor was asking us in class, he was going around, well, how do you help your people? How do you disciple one another to grow into Jesus? And everyone was going around. Then it got to me and I said, well, we do life groups. And he was like, ah, small groups, huh? Well, tell me how many people you have in small groups. And I said, well, we actually have more people in small groups than come on Sunday. And he just looked at me really weird in front of the whole class and his face scrunched up and was like, huh, your church is really weird. It's like, yes, we are. So I will take that. Hey, as long as we're, as long as we're growing into the image of Jesus, I will take weird any day. Now take all of that, what we've been going for in our church for the last 15 years, couple that with the fact that America is one of, if not the loneliest place to exist in human history, Okay. I saw this article from Jane Brody in the New York Times. She says, loneliness is now a national epidemic. According to many sociologists and psychologists who point to such contributing causes as our highly technological society, where many workers interact more with machines than with other people, to our mobility, with the average American moving 14 times during a lifetime, to the impersonality of large urban settings where many people don't even know their immediate neighbors, to the prevalence of divorce, which now ends half of American marriages. Does anyone want to guess when that article was written? Crowd participation. Anyone want to guess? 2007. Interesting. Anyone else? 2011. This article was written in 1983. So people were already sounding the alarm like 40 years ago. Also, uh, when I read that article, it's like technological advancements. What technology was being invented? (laughs) It's like, did someone see a Game Boy and was like, oh my gosh, sound the alarm. I don't know. A little more up to date, a recent survey conducted by Harvard said 36% of Americans experience serious loneliness. And that's not just like, a little loneliness from time to time, like a crippling sense of isolation over one third of Americans. To put that into perspective, that's like this whole middle section right here. That's a large number who don't have community, who don't have relationships in our country. But if you don't believe uh, the New York Times, if you don't believe Harvard, the modern day prophet John Mulaney says this. (laughs) He says, my dad has no friends and your dad has no friends. And if you think your dad has friends, you're wrong. Your mom has friends and they have husbands. Those are not your dad's friends. (laughs) He goes on to say, it's hard to make friends when you're an adult male. And I think that's the real miracle of Jesus. 
He was a 33-year-old man and he had 12 best friends and they were not his wife's friends' husbands and he didn't meet them a long time ago in school. He met them in his 30s. So there you go. If the New York Times and Harvard didn't convince you, maybe John Mulaney will. Anyway, fast forward 15 years to when our church first planted and a global pandemic later and our culture, our society has caught up to the fact that hey, it's not good for people to be alone. Like people need to be in community. People need relationships and need to process what is going on in their lives. And it's like, yeah, that's great. And when you have community and you separate that from the vision of community Paul is talking about, you settle for an alternative version of community. That's not bad per se. It's just less than the community that Paul is talking about. Because the vision Paul is talking about is we're all going in this direction to be more like Jesus. But nowadays, people have community and it's great, but it's not that vision. Here's what I mean. Instead of having this sort of vision, people settle for an alternative version of community. For one, people can create friend groups. And this is like the most common form of them. Friend groups are built generally around people who share the same hobbies or interests or seasons of life and relationships are made, and that's great. And I'm here for that. And life groups, we would want people to be friends with each other, of course. And when you view your life group as primarily a friend group, while you might have great relationships, that is not the end goal of life groups. Maturity is the main goal. And you are missing out on all the potential good and beauty that comes from group time if the primary lens by which you're viewing it is, these are my friends, and I wanna make sure we all get along. Biblical community says our friendship is ultimately not what is ultimate. Our relationship with Jesus is what's ultimate. And so I want to use my friendship and I want to leverage that in such a way to point you to what is ultimate. Another alternative that we can create is consumer groups. Consumer groups, and this is very common in our American culture to create community based on the question, what's in it for me? What do I get out of this relationship? Your relationships with others in consumer groups are very transactional, which, hear me, is not inherently bad. So, for example, I was at a coffee shop a couple of days ago. I'm trying to get to know every, all the baristas there. And so I walked up to the register. I said, hey, I'm Jake. What's your name? Oh, my name's Tyler. Okay, great. Tyler, I will have a cup of coffee. Okay, great. Scan the card. Hey, how about this weather, right? Oh, boy. All right, thank you for the car. Thank you for the coffee. See you later, Tyler. All right, that is a transactional relationship, right? Because that relationship exists because I get something out of it. I get coffee out of that. Not bad per se, but if you put that on a larger scale, people can do this with others, especially when it comes to selecting a church. Sometimes it's very overt. Like I know people who select whatever is the largest church in town as a way to network with potential clients for their business. Sometimes it's like, well, hey, I like this church because I like the music. Or I like this church and this is my church because the kids programming is great and I like it a lot. Again, that's not inherently bad, but when the primary lens to view community is through the lens of what is in it for me, then the moment that community, that relationship is not delivering the goods, so to speak, then I'm out. Then I'll go somewhere else that will deliver the goods for me. In the end, when that happens, you are the goal, not Jesus. I will go somewhere else. In the same way, it's like with that coffee shop analogy. If like I go up and say, hey, Tyler, I'll have a cup of coffee. And he says, actually, we stopped doing coffee. We're all about tea now. 
You know, do you like tea? Have you seen Ted Lasso? Tea is all the rage. We're only doing tea from now on. It's like, Tyler, it's been good knowing you, man. I got to go somewhere else, right? But we can do that when it comes to churches or relationships. The moment they are not delivering the goods, well, then I'll go find someone who will. And in this case, you are the goal and not Jesus. Your preferences, your comfort zone are what matters, not maturity, not changing to be like Jesus. And oftentimes I have found maturity happens when you recognize your preferences and you say, you know what? This is, might not be exactly how I would do it. This might not be exactly how I like it, but you know what? I see that and I recognize that and I'm going to forego that because I recognize that is challenging me and it's changing me and I'm becoming more and more mature to grow into the image of Jesus because I recognize my preferences are just that. They're just preferences. Oftentimes, that's when the Spirit really does the work to help you change to be more like Jesus. I got one more. Instead of creating a biblical vision for community, people can create therapy groups. Community around the shared goal of, hey, let's process our life with others. Let's share heavy things. Let's be transparent. Let's be comfortable. And through that, people can experience healing from a number of things, whether that be addiction or past trauma or a heavy season of life, which again, I am all here for. I'm not dogging that. I would hope people in life groups are transparent enough to feel cared for. And that is still an incomplete picture because the end goal is not that we're cared for. The end goal is maturity to Jesus. And all of these things, when you settle for an incomplete version of community, you can't have maturity to Jesus because you're settling for something less than. Now, to be clear, with our groups, we want friendships to be made. And we would hope you would like your life group. And we would hope that people feel cared for. Absolutely. But those are all just pieces of it. Those are all ingredients. And that's not the whole picture. The whole picture is we are growing and changing and moving into the image of Jesus. And this is where Paul brings in the call to action. Here's how we fight off all of the distractions that might keep us in the way of following Jesus. Verse 15. Paul says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in him in every way who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I think is so interesting. Paul says, here's the vision. Here's what we're going for. Here's the distractions. Here's the call to action. We see it in verse 15 speaking the truth in love. That's how we make sure we are staying after this vision here, that as we do life together, it means at some point you and I need to say something to help make sure that you and I don't get off the path, but that we're staying true to the vision that Jesus has for us in our community. In short, we want to create a culture here where people are known and loved and challenged toward Christ-likeness. That is the goal. And that means we are going to have to speak up from time to time to make sure we are staying to that goal. So for example, if you are in a therapy group or a recovery group, one of the standard practices is there is no crosstalk, okay? No crosstalk because we want to make sure people are feeling comfortable. And so you let people talk for as long as they want to as a way to make sure they feel cared for and comfortable. And, you know, don't give feedback. Don't respond to what they have to say. No crosstalk here. 
And while that is good for that purpose, what we are going for here is we're going for the vision of following after Jesus, which means we need to be challenged. And that means we need to speak up. And that means there has to be crosstalk, that there has to be when someone says something for us to say, okay, when you said that, what did you mean by that? Hey, you said this, but I'm looking at scripture and that's not true of what you're saying about yourself. It implies that we do need to give crosstalk if we want to challenge each other to be more like Jesus. And that means we're also going to talk about this cross, you know, capital C, cross. All right. <laughs> they, don't, they don't all have to land. But at some point, Doing biblical community means speaking the truth at love, in love, and it means you and I doing life together means at some point saying, hey, I love you, and I want Jesus for you, and because I want Jesus for you, I need you to be aware of this sin or this blind spot or this area where perhaps you're not as self-aware as you realize, and I want to point you to Scripture because I want Jesus for you, and I want you to repent. I want you to change. Now, here's why I say all of that is that my concern is, as a church, if we're not careful, is when we're in life group and someone shares something heavy, that we might loudly applaud their transparency and their authenticity while quietly whispering repentance. That we might tell someone how proud we are, that they shared honestly, and no one asks them what action steps of obedience and repentance they ought to take next. That we might treat life groups like a therapy couch rather than a place to invite the spirit to challenge us and to grow us to be more like him. That we might be quick to highlight scriptures that offer up, that assure us of forgiveness and God's love, which I'm here for, okay? But all the while we ignore or downplay the scriptures that demand we pursue change by the power of the spirit fueled by the grace of God. Because the vision we are going after is maturity and we want change and we want to be disrupted out of our comfort zone. And that necessitates that we speak up and we encourage and we offer words of hope when needed and we offer a word of correction when needed. That's what we're going for. Now, to be clear, what I want you to hear, here's what I'm not saying. I am not saying that we go out into life groups this week, just guns a-blazing, just waiting to pounce on anyone that confesses any sin, right? Or as soon as we get to confessing, you're just like rubbing your hands together, just cracking your knuckles saying, let's go. Hey, let's do this. I'm not saying that. What I'm arguing for is that we're people of the pages. Ephesians chapter four, people who desire and fight for the maturity in each other's lives to say, I love you. I want Jesus for you. I need you to see this. I want to invite you to change, invite you to repent by the power of the Spirit. I'm not saying that we tell people what to do and offer only good advice. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we need a holistic gospel vision for people's lives to say, hey, Jesus loved you. Jesus loves you. He conquered death for you. And he's inviting you to experience life in him. That means you need to obey. That means you need to repent that means you need to be receptive to what the Spirit is telling you in community. That's how you change and that's how you grow. I'm also not arguing for some form of legalism that says you need to earn Jesus' love for you. I'm not here for that. What I am arguing for is what Jesus says in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus loves you and he invites you into that love to become more fully human in the way of Jesus by taking on his way of life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's going to require time and doing the hard work of speaking up. And it's going to require you being receptive when someone speaks up to you. 
It requires training our minds around the promises of scripture so that we can offer a word of hope to people who are struggling and offering a word of rebuke to people who are perhaps blinded by sin. And when that happens, that's when real community takes place. And that's when the spirit does the work in us to help us become a people who are more fully human so that we can be a city on a hill, a people that is striving to look after, to look like Jesus and to invite the world and to say, hey, come and experience the grace and beauty and rest of Jesus. So to conclude, uh, sermon conclusions are always a bit of like an open-ended sort of thing because I recognize there are lots of you that come from different places when it comes to church. Some of you have been around for a minute. Some of you are brand new to us this week. So uh, let me just offer you all some questions to process. Number one, are you settling for an alternative vision of community that you need to repent of? Do you have a different expectation for life group? Maybe you're thinking of it as like, this is my friend group. This is primarily a consumer group or therapy group that you just need to repent of. Maybe you're letting your expectations dictate how you do life with others rather than letting the Bible call the shots. And if that's you, to change would invite you to repent by the power of the Spirit. Second, are you a person who invites others to know you and love you and challenge you? And are you doing that for others as well? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet plugged into a life group. Maybe you're like, you know, I'm good because I have friends. That's great. Maybe those friends are Christians. Awesome. That's great. But are you regularly being called into that vision of maturity? And maybe the next step for you is to join a life group this morning. Maybe you're here and you're not yet a Christian and you're thinking, yo, this is all crazy. What are we even talking about here? And if that's you, I would challenge you the same. Come to a life group. Check us out. If you really want to know who we're about as a church, get involved with, in a life group. You have permission to be a fly on the wall the first couple weeks. You don't have to say anything. Just check us out. Feel free to deep, dip your toe in. And in the process, you might find yourself eventually coming to see just how beautiful and amazing and wonderful Jesus is, that you might begin to experience this newness of life that he talks about. You begin to realize how God went to such great lengths to redeem you from sin, to conquer death on your behalf, and now he invites you, invites you constantly to experience more and more of this kingdom life.